This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com and log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. Hey, welcome everybody to Going in Circles Live. It's Tuesday of Derby Week. And uh, I'm sure if you're following racing and you have a pulse, you know by now that uh, there's a big scratch out of the Derby. Art Collector grabbed a quarter really bad yesterday morning and apparently um, a grab quarter is, is not a major injury, but it, it's something akin to maybe uh, losing a nail off your little toe and it's not the end of the world but it's it's painful and it's sore and this is the kind of um little hiccup that that can stop any horse um pain is is the one thing that that stops horses faster than anything and apparently the the grab um which is literally the horse's hind foot grabbing a hold of the the meat of the the horse's front foot it um it was in a place that uh every time the horse stepped took a step took a stride it was going to land right on top of it and that's it's just uh in a in a race of this magnitude it, it, Tommy Drury clearly did the right thing and i'm sure he's uh, completely devastated because you look at this race and there's no todd pletchers there's no though i'm not even sure who put the last minute horse in south bend i don't even know who trains the horse so but of all the horses chad brown john sadler doug o'neill um Bill Mott, all these people get tons and tons and tons and tons of well-bred horses, and none of them have a horse in here. And it just shows you how difficult it is to have a horse with enough ability and enough good fortune to stay healthy to make it here. It, it, it's one of the issues that people have, have kind of whined about with this Triple Crown is that the spacing of the races and how deep into the year it is and um you know that you don't have to have that three starts in five weeks there's no mile and a half well one of the issues is maintaining good form and maintaining health for this long the longer you space in between the races obviously the more times on that racetrack the horse is going to be going and every time they go out there there's always a chance that something like this would crop up and if this happened two weeks ago it would have been taken care of by by derby time however at this late date it just isn't possible to um to 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 make it at a hundred percent and and running a horse in this magnitude of a race at less than a hundred percent even at 99 percent it's um it's just the prudent course of action to scratch and to 
wait for another day. It's just sad that um, a trainer that doesn't get many chances with these type of horses uh, is going to miss out. And uh, honestly, we talked on last night's podcast, Barry and I, about the field. We, We talked about every horse in the field, though we weren't South Bend wasn't. Uh, wasn't spoken about because we had no idea he would he would go in there, but um, you know we kind of went through the the rest of the field and then left the two uh, main contenders, Tis the Law and Our Collector, for their own little segment as though they are clearly the uh, horses that had the most credentials going into this race that, um, you know, will be, um, I mean, they, they were the, the, the clear two favorites. And, and I know that, um, honorary P's seemingly getting some, some late money and some of the overseas bookmakers have him as a, or had him as the co-second choice or close third choice. But in our, in, my, in our minds, Barry actually, Barry liked Art Collector and was going to bet uh, he was going to key Art Collector on top. Part of that, of course, is because he's looking at it from a wagering standpoint and taking short price favorites in big fields is rarely a, a smart betting tactic. Though the horses don't know that we're betting on them and they're just going to run. And I thought that that matchup, if they had hit the the top of the stretch with Art Collector moving to the lead and, and Tis the Now, Tis the Now, Tis not, or Tis the Law uh, at his throat or vice versa could have been one of the, the really classic derbies, but, um, but that's not going to happen now. And it just, like I said, it shows you how difficult it is to, to just make it to these races. And that's, um, that's never uh, never been more apparent than than today. Um, secondarily, the, there's news that uh, had Art Collector not been injured, that he might have been looking for a new jockey. As it turns out that uh, Brian Hernandez has tested positive for COVID. And I don't know exactly what the protocols were going to be. I don't know if he was going to be retested before the race. And obviously that's, you know, that's that's not uh, the biggest issue, even though he has, has other, other mounts on undercard races. That would have been a wild circumstance with the second choice in the Kentucky Derby's mount coming open the week of the Derby. Uh, and with the protocol set, I, I really don't know. I don't know who was going to be open in there. I mean, it could have. Uh, it, it would have been a really uh, strange happenstance. And, uh, poor Brian gets kind of hit with a double whammy. His in that uh, his horse scratches and, and then uh, looks like he's he's scratched. So it's uh, it's Derby week and all kinds of crazy stuff happens. Uh, I remember the year. That AP Indy scratched morning of the race, and um, certainly 
hasn't taken away from his legacy as, as he wound up doing a whole lot after um, the Derby, the Belmont, the, the Breeders' Cup Classic, and turns out to be a one of the most influential stallions of the of the last 25, 30 years. But um, it's so hard to, to get these horses. They're so fragile. There's so many things that can go wrong with a racehorse. There's only a few things that can go right. Um, and everything else is, is, uh, everything else is bad. And uh, I really feel bad for those guys. And I really feel bad for racing in general because it, it kind of takes a little bit of the luster out of this race. And you can make cases for horses, but you can't make great cases for horses. Yeah, a lot of people are, 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 are in on, on authentic and I, I don't believe in the Haskell. I don't, I didn't think the Haskell was a strong race when I saw it on paper I didn't really believe the number when the figures came out, and, and everyone had the race quicker. And and I get it. I understand how those guys operate, and, and, and they're usually more right than I am. But uh, I'm skeptical about the race. I'm skeptical about the Haskell and, and the, the first two finishers. Um, I'm skeptical about uh, Honor AP. <laughs> Uh, I'm skeptical about Thousand Words. I'm skeptical about pretty much everyone else that's not named Tis the Law. And I hate to be a front runner, and I hate to be a be a chalk player, but he is probably the most credentialed horse coming into the Derby. And, and obviously, this is an odd Derby. It's a September Derby, but he has answered. A lot of the questions. He's good enough, clearly. The distance is not an issue as, as he won a, being pulled up his last race, going a mile and a quarter. So he's already done that. Um, he, he's very consistent. I know you have the one knock against him is the race at uh, Churchill where he, he was inside horses and a sloppy track and and he didn't fire as well as he has every other race, but uh, I think post-17 is a, is a big, big benefit to him. And my friend Alan Bytus makes a very good point in that you come out of the gate, you, t- you take a left, you take a right, someone comes over, and you. it doesn't matter what post you have if you get in trouble. There's always trouble to be found breaking from the starting gate. But post-17 gives us a chance... Uh, or gives him a chance to load late, and if there is a misstep, if uh, Authentic does come over, or, or someone, even if he were to stumble a little bit coming out of there, and, he, and he's come out of the gate really, really sharp his last few races, um, being on the outside, he's still going to have clear sailing for a quarter of a mile to that first turn for Manny Franco to get position on with him. Um so, Jay, Priv, um, Jay Privman wrote uh, something on Twitter and about how Post-17 has never won the Derby. And, of course, Tis the Law is from Post-17. And, and he was saying it kind of facetiously um, in that, uh, I mean, let's face it, it doesn't matter. When you have one, um, 
you're running a one race a year under these circumstances with an entirely different crew of horses. It's it's not a, a yes. You don't want to draw post one uh, if you have a horse that doesn't want to be covered up. You don't want to draw inside. Um, there is no more auxiliary gate, and um, with a with a less than twenty horse field, the one post is not quite as cramped down on the inside as it would be um, under the old gate situation, but. Um, you know, historical post positions, they're meaningless. They, they mean nothing. Every, like I said, every year is a completely different field. It's a completely different track um, that they're racing over. It's a completely different crew of horses. It's, it's uh, I mean, it'd be nice for Tis the Law to win for a lot of reasons. Getting rid of the, <laughs> the post-17 curse, as it will, is the... It would be nice uh, to, to just have one less superstition. And being that the gate is very, very important, especially in, in a race like this, uh, let me welcome to our show Bob Duncan, who was the head starter for the Naira tracks for, for years. And um, Bob is, a, is one of the preeminent starters that, that we've ever had, and, and uh, I'm happy to, to get him uh, He's traveling, but he was nice enough to take some time out of his day to, to talk to us, and uh, we're happy to have him. Bob, are you there? I'm here, Chuck, yep. Hey, Bob. Hey. Um, obviously, it's Derby week, so the topic of conversation is the Derby, and, and one of the one of the things that um, is kind of we take for granted every day when we watch races is, is loading in the gate and, and breaking from the gate. But the Derby, of course, is, is a different animal because of the size of the field and, and the sheer numbers. And and, uh, and this year, you know, we always had that auxiliary problem where, where you had the, the extra gate on the outside. And uh, this year, the Churchill Downs has invested in a 20-stall gate, I think, that comes from Australia. And you've had some uh, – you're familiar with this gate a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah, I, uh, I, did, I do – clinics and some consulting outside the country and uh, i used to go down to barbados for four or five years and school horses with them and then actually it, you know they're pretty casual down there i would get to handle them in the gate some of the horses that, that i work with and uh so i got to see the gate fairly frequently and it's the same gate basically from what i understand is the one that uh, that uh, churchill's getting or has uh it's uh it's such a popular gate around the world, so it's hard to knock it except but you're just, I'm just used to being on our American gates, which are much more heavily built and sturdy. There's no, it's hard to move them. I mean, the horses will get to rocking them, but it's not uh, this. Uh, the Stonewall gate that they that I've worked out of, uh, both in Australia and Barbados, is the lighter version. Uh, it's it's a little more difficult to school a rough horse than I found. Uh, I've had a couple of instances in Barbados where a fractious horse was able to able to sit back hard against the back doors and break one of the doors. So I thought, oh, gosh, that would this would not hold up in American racing if you're going to use it for schooling and for racing, you know, constantly for for the whole race meet. Uh, but overall, I, they seem to do well, and uh, 
there is a ledge. Uh, that was always a concern. I think some of the places that get the gate don't even have the ledge in there. So assistant starters just crawl, lead the horse in, and then duck under the bottom skirt. The skirt is on a on a spring, and it'll it'll fold out, so you can duck underneath without having to crawl on your hands and knees, and, and then it pops back into place. And so so that's how they get handled, and and, and you know the deal with with the European horses and everything. They, they, they tend to do less gate work. They they usually do their own gate work. The trainers. Uh, it's not like in the United States where. Uh, our formal racetracks supply a gate crew, and and we get to see all these horses, and we have the final say on when they get to run. You know, and so our horses get handled a lot more. But the problem, the problem, the difference is uh, European horses tend to the the strategy is to break slowly from the gate, and they all rate and rate rate, and you know, use your horse all at the end. And this tends to make the horses in the gate quieter and more more. More uh, uh, cooperative, going yeah, in the gate. Uh, but over here, you know how it is. Over here, everybody wants to be on the lead, <laughs> so right. it's, it makes it a challenge. I, I, I worked for Gay Waterhouse in Australia for quite a couple of years, and and uh, her, her goal was to have her horses break on top every time. Every time her her husband Robbie Greathouse is, is a very successful bookmaker over there, and. He had done an analysis and, 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 and talked day and saying, you know, you're going to win so many more races if your horses are breaking better. So we so we went over there and, and, and tried to work with those horses and improve them. Uh, but that's a challenge. And so, you know, fortunately, we we have the opportunity to school horses when they get fractious in the gate. And uh, we can insist upon them coming up as uh, often as we think they need uh, to get them uh, straightened away. And I, I, we've also improved the way we do it, Chuck. We, our methods, uh, our schooling methods, are much more uh, therapeutic and and uh, settling for the horse now. I, I remember when I was a kid, um, and unfortunately, that's it's <laughs> a long time ago now. But uh, the, <laughs> you're still young when you hang with me. You're still young. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the use of the 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 buggy whip was um, it was a lot more prevalent, and and horses were were made to do things. And I think that um, I'm going to give you a lot of credit uh, here, but I think that you were one of the guys who led the charge in in trying to get um, horses educated to do the job without. Uh, trying to scare them into doing the job, and and I, I, I honestly, you know, gate crews get a lot of, um, it's like umpires in baseball. The only time people talk about the gate crew is is when a horse rears up or or, or, or breaks yeah. bad. You know, pe- people yeah, yeah. they, they kind of to talk about the the negative, but um, and yes, every once in a while, someone will praise somebody in the gate. Um, the horse acts acts real bad. I think in the Whitney this year. Um, um, Justin, uh, you know, did a great job with uh, Bob Baffert's horse, who wound up winning the race. And uh, but mo- more, more often than not, it's it's the negative, it's it's the criticism. Yeah. And uh, and I don't think it's entirely fair because I think people, if you haven't been there, and I mean, I've never worked the gate, but of course I've been there in the mornings a ton. I've been at 
the gate for you know when when the races were going on and and to think um about how small the space is and how yeah. those horses are so uh, i mean th- this this is the last second before they're absolutely going to just explode you know and and uh, and yeah. and i believe you really you know uh i think a, a lot of the techniques that you started are are being used everywhere now and and uh and just just tell us kind of your philosophy on on you know working with a horse especially maybe a horse that's a little bulky because you know there's always some horses that take to it right away and they're they're not problems and those are the you know the ones you're you're always hoping for but but there's always a couple yeah well there's a lot that goes it goes into it now and and went into it uh, when I first started on the job back in the 70s uh, we always consider ourselves a good gate crew. We were, it was an eight-man crew back then, and uh, you might wind up putting three horses in in one race yourself. You know, running around grabbing another horse. But the problem back then was uh, our, our our skill level was was we we could do it the traditional way and, and be as successful as any gate crew. But we were kind of approaching it in a manner that. Uh, I felt there was a lot of attrition, and you know, we were able to get it done, but we were quite often using force and fear and mental intimidation. And add to that the fact, you know, the buggy whip was prevalent, and it was seen, and the public perception of that type of use around the horses, you know, it was just it was just bad. It was bad all around. And so I had start started back in the early '90s trying to figure out a kind of a more humane way or a horse-friendly way to work with the horses. And I wound up getting some attention from Monty Roberts when he had his book, The Man Who Listens to Horses. And he came by one day and started telling me to the races and invited me to go out to his place and uh, work with him. He's, he has a gate out there, and he was working with a problem horse at the time. He said, if you could get out here, it would be great. And coincidence after coincidence seemed to occur. I got it. We both got invited to be on the same panel. Uh, at the University of Arizona Symposium on Racing, and, and, and the topic was public perception of, of racing. So since I was going out that way, I said, why don't you come out and spend a week with me before that? So I went out there, and it was an eye-opening experience for him because he had this technique of involving, uh, well, he does the, the you know the, the round pen thing that everybody's familiar with, but there's, there's an element of it uh, where he works with the horse just using pressure and release and and it would take me longer than your podcast has time for but it's a process where you, you ask the horse to do something with a little slight level of pressure we use a rope halter mm-hmm. and a long lead and you apply a little bit of pressure and the horse will feel for a way to make it's, it's not pain but it's, it's uncomfortable they, they'd rather you want to do it then they'll move around and then suddenly they might move a foot and the instant they move that foot, you release. And, and to make this a shorter conversation <laughs> than it's going to right now, you, you can soon teach the horse to respond to the slightest little touch. Sometimes it just becomes a horse watching his shoulders. And what happens is the horse becomes calm because you're actually speaking a language that the horse already knows when you're asked to move around. It's things that his mother did with him when he was a foal. And, and, and there's a connection that that starts to occur, and they actually fit you into their hierarchy. You know, you get to be the leader, and, and they start trusting you because every time you, there's a, there's a level of that too. You move them, and they get, 
you know, you love them up and you give them comfort or you swap flies off them. Or, you, know, that, you don't ever give you don't have to give them candy or anything like that. It's just, it's just the fact that you give them that release and, the, and, and, and you can introduce the horse to the starting gate once you do that and, and the gate is much less of a threat. And there's a great expression that, that they use all the time and that's to, to make your idea the horse's idea. So you present the gate to them in such a way that they can they can sample it and move away from it. They, they, they have great curiosity uh, and they have a great play drive. And once they connect to you, the gate becomes kind of a challenge for them as a game. It's not it's not so much between a rock and a hard place. So uh, so that's a, that's the basis. That's the, the substance of the new way we got to working with the horses. And and, and because of it, uh, Chuck. I mean, it's been twenty five years since we've owned a buggy whip and, and the gate I work in and. You might have noticed that even when we were working with your horses and, and good pacing at uh, Palm Beach Downs at that time, that we don't we don't uh, put we don't force horses into the gate. We don't push them into the gate. There's no buggy whip. We don't back them into the gate anymore. No more blindfolds. No more of those heavy loads. Where, you know, six guys are lifting the hind end off the ground. You can get you can start getting your leadership thing working, and the horse become very cooperative and. It just makes it easier, and, and you, you eliminate so many of those explosions that were common almost every morning when we were schooling horses in the early days. So it, it, for me, it was it was uh, uh, an epiphany. And the, the, the irony of it to me, though, was when I presented it to my gate crew uh, the first couple of times, they said, well, have you gotten the buggy of a pot? He'd already been in the gate. You know, it, it takes a while for that, to unlearn the old way, and then, so what I thought was going to be a revolution it turned out to be an evolution. <laughs> it's been a slow process, and the other gate crews been picking it up, and they find success. And uh, I mean, Doug, Doug down there, and uh, Doug Jordan down in Kentucky is a fine horseman, and he, he's he's got a great crew, and they're they're very amenable to the new ideas. And the Maryland crew are doing it, and California has always done it to some degree. Uh, they were a little more forceful, I thought, when they did it, but their timing was good, so the horses did learn from it. And uh, it's just a, it's a way to make horses. I think, I think it improves the, the, the racing career of the horse, because, and, and this would be another long conversation, but it changes the way they breathe, because they're not in flight mode from being afraid uh, when we do it the way we do it now. The horse stays calm, they breathe through in their abdomen, they go in the gate, and, and they have a reserve of oxygen. When, you, when we used to chase them, and they, they would go in the gate, and they'd have that, that uh, adrenaline rush and that choppy breath. They'd hyperventilate, and they'd blast out of the gate, and sometimes they'd run a quarter of a mile and be done. And we'd all be calling them out, they're cheap, they're cheaters, they don't want it, they don't forgive it. We'd blame the horse for, for the problem. And I think, uh, I don't know how you could test it scientifically, but I think if there were a way, you'd find it makes a great difference, and I think you get more starts out of a horse uh, now than they used to get. I tell you, it, it's, inter- it's interesting you say that because when I was at Churchill Downs, this was quite a while ago, but I was sitting there watching a race one day, and it was a couple horses, and I, and, and I was I was working for some, some guys that like to claim fillies. And I was watching this one particular race, and it was a, a mile in a 16th race, so it started right in front of the grandstand. And there was a horse in there that had run pretty well. And she just was not wanting any part of the gate. And I'm watching her. And, and uh, she didn't have blinkers on. She, she did, they didn't uh, do anything different. She just was eyeing up 
the guy with the, the, the buggy whip behind her the entire way. And even when they yeah. got her in the gate, they finally got you know locked hands, put her in there. She yeah. never settled, and she was wound up, and she would break fine. I mean, she wasn't as though it was affecting her, her leaving the gate, but she would get yeah. so wound up that she was almost white with sweat, and she would run yeah. to the quarter pole and stop. And I told my guys, I said, we should claim this horse. I have an idea. And this was right around the start of um, when we started using the gate blankets. And yeah. I thought to myself, and, and she was trained by an old, an old school guy. And uh, a lot of the old timers, they didn't believe in, in, in things like a gate blanket. They, they were, hey, you know, we'll, we'll just keep doing it until they do it. And, and I, I mean, I was kind of the opposite. I was kind of an open-minded person, and, and working for Jerkins especially, and a lot of the other guys I worked for, Tommy Skiffington too, I mean, they, they were open-minded about, about trying new things. And, yeah. and I said to myself, that filly didn't look forward one second when she was behind that gate until the time she went into the gate till the time they broke. I said, I'm yeah. going to put some blinkers on her just so she can't see, and I'm going to put the gate blanket on her. I'm going to school her a couple times just to kind of see if that can at least give her a little bit of confidence. And it worked really well. And uh, I remember when I claimed her, the jockey came to me and he said to me, he goes, listen, if you can figure out, he goes, that filly loses her race in the gate every time. He goes, the only time that she didn't do that was the first time she ran. And um, he said, I'd love to ride her back. I'd love to school your, you know, the, the trainer, he's an old school guy, and he just doesn't want to, you know, I, I, I mentioned a couple things, and he just doesn't want to do it. And uh, I kept that jockey on, and, and it worked really well. And she moved way up, and, and I wound up selling her for um, uh, about four times what we claimed her for. And it just, honestly, the only thing I did different was I got her, uh, she, she was comfortable using the equipment. It wasn't as though we tried any new techniques other than the equipment. Yeah. And, and just explain to people uh, about the gate blanket. When people see them putting a blanket on a horse when they go into the gate, what that does. It's a desensitizing thing. Though. It, it, the gate has oftentimes different temperatures and different feels. The, the pontoons are colder than the padding on the side. And horses sometimes are sensitive to it, the fillies in particular, uh, it kind of sets off that uh, the, the the hormonal thing, you know, where they where they get ticklish behind and they get to squealing and sitting down, squatting. You know, and, and the horse has, has what's called opposition reflex. If they touch something and it, and, and it bothers them, they push into it. They they lean into it. Supposedly, they, that comes from nature. They're genetically predisposed to not pull away from a, a, a prey animal that's a, a predator animal that's attacking them. Because if you pull away from it, they'll they get disemboweled by the claws. I mean that's that's theory, obviously, but that that was I've read that in uh, some horse horse books, and uh, so the the blanket kind of cocoons the horse in there, and it, it's sort of uh, against what you would think, because we often talk about horses being claustrophobic. But truth is, when horses hang out together, they they cluster; they they don't mind being close together. The, the blanket seems to give them that. The sense of the sense of touching both sides of the gate, including the back, equally with a soft, with soft material, and, and they're willing to put up with the, the doors being closed on them and standing standing better. And it's not 100 percent pure. What interests me about about what you said, uh, Chuck, was that 
you took the same path I did. I, when I was on, on the gate, I didn't know the answer. I just knew I wanted to do it better. And I would try to come up with gimmicks, you know, different gimmicks. We put we put shields in front of horses that were studish. You know, we put a big plexiglass shield so that the horse couldn't see the horse next to him. And that worked sort of. And uh, we added a, we called it a wedge, which was a, a, a a thing that the South American trainer said they used, and I built one. I didn't build it, but we we got it built, and it was you'd slide it down behind the horse's rear end, and it fills up the the V in the back, and then the horses tend to stand up a little better. Mm-hmm. But what I found out with the new way we're doing it, with this communication first, where you don't you you deal with the horse ideally away from the game, maybe even in the stall if it's a particularly difficult horse to get this movement, to create movement. And, and the movement is like, will you step uh, backward? Will you step forward? Will you yield your front end? Will you yield your hind end? And each time you, you, get the, you ask the horse to do it, you exaggerate your motion, and gradually the horse starts responding to the most subtle thing you do, which could be just the movement of your shoulders, or in fact to the point where sometimes it's just your eyes, and the horse will respond. If you stare at their hip bone, they'll move their hip. And... and that's how sensitive they are, and that's really where we can go. In the old days, you saw us twelve hundred pounds. We've got to be big and tough and rough, and you know we've got to dominate them. And it was just the wrong approach. I mean, we, we would get it done, but it was just the wrong approach. So, so uh, the blanket's great, but what I found, what I found now, is that the equipment goes out the window now. There's very little we use that we used to use that were sort of band aids. Now we're trying to trying to find uh, the cure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Symptoms, you know. If you, if, right, if you, if you don't have the problem to start with, you don't need to find a cure for the problem. Exactly. Well, and, but you get that horse done. That it's just a rarity now. I shouldn't say this. This probably next horse I see, Todd's part of. You jumped out the back on me, but we, you know, we, when we take that those few moments to make that contact with the horse, and you get the horse to where you know he's looking at you, not over your head or back to the barn. It's going to be a much safer experience. Can you still hear me? I'm, but my phone's making noise. No, no, we can hear you fine. Okay, uh, I've lost my track now, but uh, it, it's changed everything for us. Uh, learning the new technique—it's just sure. improved everything we do. No, it's, it's true, and, and I believe that um, you know people talk about imprinting foals and, and things, uh, handling them as soon as they're born to try to get them as familiar with people as possible. And, and I think that one of the issues that I always had with as a trainer, because I wanted my horses when they would come to me to have worked up to three-eighths of a mile and to have broke from the gate. Maybe they yeah. haven't broke from the gate um, you know, like they're ready to run, but they've, they've done enough gate work where we could take them uh, bring them to the crew at whatever track we were at, and, and they would have not to have to start from scratch. And some, yeah. uh, of course, some places do it much, much better than other places. But I think a lot of the younger guys spend more time uh, gate schooling the horses before they get to the racetrack than than it, than it used to be. And uh, and that's just a <laughs> that that's just me talking to people and, and, and hearing input from from a lot of other trainers but uh it's so important and um i mean i know it's an extreme example but but look at um you know what what happened with quality road um and and having to scratch out of you know uh, a race of of that magnitude it that's the obviously the extreme uh, example i can can help you with that i mean i i 
I didn't know him until that incident. And I got got the call from Todd that we're going to try to get him back to New York, and we set up a, a, a schooling deal for him. Uh, he he was the nicest horse to be around as a two year old and a three year old. Everybody that had, that dealt with my ex wife was working for Jimmy back then when he, when he had the horse, and then she said he just the kindest horse to be around. And his issue really, it was really about him being a dominant type horse, as a lot of the good ones are. And he he would do these subtle things, and uh, and no one would correct him because it's quality road, and he's just great racehorse. And you know things like he'd be walking down the struggle and he'd. Turn, stop at a door and look out the door, and they say, "Oh, look, isn't that nice?" He's he's looking out the door, or he walking along, he'd be pushing the hot walker with his nose or something. They say, "Oh, that's great! Look at how nice he uses pots, quality road." Then he got to where he was going toward the van, he'd stop and he'd look around, and he'd pull him over to the side and graze. And they'd say, "Well, you know, let him do that. That's quality road." But what the horse was doing was developing leadership. He was moving. He was making. He was moving the person around when the person should have been moving the horse around. Yeah, and, he, and that he wanted to be the boss. Him. And then when it came to a crisis, like the day of the Breeders' Cup, and, and the guys on the gate crew were doing what they do, it, the, the, the steps they took, whether you agree with them or not, were pretty standard operation on the track. It just they found the wrong horse that day, yeah. and he was just going to fight. And it just it just uh, regressed into that horrible sight. And, uh, but the, the proof in the pudding there, uh, uh, Chuck, was when he got him back to us in New York. And I got down there, and I happened to be on a Tuesday afternoon, and I called Todd when I was driving out because I was getting there earlier than I thought, and he was at the barn. I said, well, how about if I come over now? Because the plan was to start working with him on Wednesday and do Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, four days in a row, and then we assess where we stood with him. So I, by getting there that night, I was able to see him in, in the stall first and, and do that process of moving him around with the rope halter and the, and the 12-foot rope lead. Just you know, moving him and moving him, and he's got he he has his play drive is huge. I mean, he's a, 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 a he's just so exciting, and, and and he has fun with everything he did at the barn. I mean, he's he's big and he's up in the air, but it's not it's not violent. It's not it's going at anybody. He's not resisting. It's just him feeling good. And we took him out back behind the thing. You know, he had standing bandages on and everything, and, and within fifteen minutes, we had him doing all these things. It was like dancing with him, but his ears are pricked, and he's looking at you, and it was a game, and he was enjoying it so much. And Todd and I looked at each other, and he agreed that this doesn't look like we're going to have a problem here. And sure enough, we did four days of schooling, each day increasing the the pressure, making it closer to what it looks like on a race day with the riders up and driving around the stable area at Belmont first and driving over to Aqueduct. And we did the whole receiving barn thing and and, and and set up with kind of a race situation with him and another horse out of the paddock and going over. Because at the time, they are going to try to run him in the cigar mile. And uh, so they sent him over there, and the horse never once in those four days did anything wrong. He was just so intense, so engaged, and he... He, the horses don't mind not being the leader. They just they got to find their spot, and, and he would always test. The, the, the Pat Pirelli, who I should mention, I should mention Pat Pirelli and Ray Hunt, along with with Monty, because the, these guys are just the most brilliant horsemen, and, and they uh, they they get things done with horses you just can't believe. And this, for some reason, this information never got into the racetrack, but. Uh, Paulie Road was perfect, and he was and he was perfect in every race after that, and set records. And so he's like the poster child for this the program that I, I'm trying to explain to you. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's 
everybody was saying, oh, he's not going to, he may never race again, they should retire him, you know. And that this wasn't the case. He, he wasn't claustrophobic. It just, he, he got it, he was challenged and fought back. Right. That was his nature. Bob, when, when was, um, when did you first start working um, on the gate? On the gate? Yes. 19, <laughs> first, 1967, I worked, I was in college and I worked two summers. Uh, and then after the second summer, I got drafted and then came back in 1970 and was on full-time. And I was lucky to have uh, a, a wonderful man. Frank Calvary was the, was the kind of the go, go-to guy as far as horse handlers. He was the premier assistant starter at the time. And, and, and we became friends, and he mentored me in a, a lot of ways besides horses. He, he taught, kind of taught me how to grow up and act more mature and, and you know, just carry yourself in a certain way and then I, I always uh, will be thankful to him for that but he was at the time handling horses you know, like Secretariat and Forgo and all the good horses Frank handled and and, and so he tutored me and, and I got I, I found it myself after five years or so in a spot just below Frank and Frank would have like one time Secretariat and Lever Ridge were in the same race so he got Secretary I got to handle Lever Ridge and then when, when Aladar and a farm ran, uh, the first, as a two-year-old, he handled Aladar, and uh, he handled uh, firm. No, I got it backwards now. He handled he handled Aladar as a two-year-old, and then uh, wound up uh, Lazarera talked Mr. Cassidy into getting Frank to handle a firm, and so I wound up getting to handle Aladar. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I was sort of like following up and doing being cleanup for him, <laughs> and it gave me an opportunity to handle some wonderful horses. Uh, I went up to handling Seattle flu. That wasn't a backup by then, but that was just, I got to handle him early. He was fractious in his first race, and mm-hmm. and, and, and Bill Turner asked, asked if I could handle him. And so I handled him every time he ran in New York. And most of the, he was an education for me, Chuck. He's a, he's a horse that, you know, you, you just, uh, were you around back then? Or you were too, you're too young, right, for that? How old were you back then? I was around back then, but I was <laughs> Put it this way: I, I was I wasn't in middle school yet, <laughs> but you know I grew up in Saratoga. So like you know, us kids that grew up in Saratoga, uh, like horse racing was you know it was like a big league sport to us because that was what you know they did in our town. So um, so we were exposed young. <laughs> but um, that's great. I mean, uh, you know, one thing about the gate crew is that. Their exposure to so many great horses. I mean, uh, oh, we were so lucky to be around in the seventies. It was just unbelievable. I, I remember walking through the um, through the paddock in, in Belmont, and uh, you know, the, through the tunnel, and, and you thought to yourself, so many times I thought to myself, every great horse of the twentieth century has walked this the same yeah. path, and uh, uh, you know, you, you look at the the legendary figures, and um, I, I mean, I, I've been a big since I started these podcasts and, and, and radio things, I, I've been a big proponent of history and, and how the business yeah, is kind I of... I saw that. That's, that's great that how, you're doing how, that. How we kind of get away from history. And, and some of people th- yeah. say things. Someone had said something uh, on Twitter the other day about Into Mischief, who's a very, very good sire. You know, Is Into Mischief the best sire ever uh, for horses up to a mile? And, uh, and I, I, you know, I said, uh, you know, Mr. Prospector, <laughs> you know, like, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, Mr. Prospector had like 57 grade one winners, not 57 state yeah. winners. And sometimes we forget about uh, about the past. And, and that's, uh, yeah. 
that's something you know like guys guys like yourself you 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 know you've handled not not only have you seen these horses you've physically been uh, you know you've yeah. worked with them you've been in the gate yeah, with them for these wonderful but at the time i mean you, you, it's exciting i, I mean I, I remember what Hannah, uh slew in the, in the belmont and it was like bigger holiday than christmas for me <laughs> one of the most exciting things i was ever going to do in my life i thought <laughs> yeah okay remember this, remember this moment remember this moment because it's going to mean a lot to you no, so it, I, I can remember Chuck the first Saturday that I recall working. I wasn't handling horses. I was closing back doors and just running around and helping. But the, the one race, I think it was, it was a year before they opened Belmont back up when they re- refurbished it. And they were, I think they were, I think it was, might have been the Jockey Club Gold Cup. You'll, you'll know when I tell you the horses. And I'm looking in the starting gate, and Dr. Fegger's in the starting gate. Damascus is in the starting gate. And uh, who was the other one? The, the, uh, Dr. Fager, Damascus, and three great horses were in, in the starting gate. And I'm thinking, God, I'm, I'm grabbing $3,500 clamors from my dad. These <laughs> horses I'm standing by. It was just such an amazing era. Uh, it was just fabulous. I, I, I understand. I mean, I started with the Trotters at Saratoga Harness, you know, so I, I was used to taking care of $2,500 clamors. And, and then, uh, you know, a few years later, I'm, I'm working for Wayne Lucas, and we have, uh, you know, uh, just uh, uh, you know, this grade one horse after this grade one horse after this grade one horse, and it's like yeah. they're all horses, yeah. but it's a, a little, you know, the, the the good ones they breathe a little different air, you know, that's the the saying. But um, Bob, I, I really well, I, I, I know it. It was the third horse was Buck Passer. <laughs> Buck Passer, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. it was, it was talking <laughs> about the trio. That that was a little bit before my time, though. My dad has told me yeah. a lot of stories, and and. Uh, it's yeah. sad that there's not that much video of of that era. Um, why is that? Out there? Well, it seems like we have video from the twenties and thirties, and why? Why, why did they not store it well? I, I, I don't, don't know. know. That's and the case. That that's such a good question, and uh, I mean, I understand like the video that uh, you know that they were using back then um, would have to be converted, of course, but. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I know I got a bunch of VCR tapes of uh, Harvey Pack shows and, oh, and races yeah. from yeah. the the 80s that i used to tape them uh every day and um yeah it's just uh it's 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 a little sad because that uh, to me the the two ways that you can really read into history of horse racing is looking at P- pps and, and watching the races and um unfortunately um we're not really able to do that we, I mean, there are some races. It's, it's you know, don't get me wrong. There are there are some races, but uh, but uh, hey, you know what? Well, uh, you you that's lived just it, life, so. though, isn't it, Chuck? I mean, I think nobody appreciates things as they're happening. It's, it's, it's later on when they when you reflect back and, and compare it to all the other things where you said that you can see remember the greatness. You, you know, they were special. Well, that's I was talking to someone the other day. I said, you know, when I was a kid. The, the the only races that were on national TV were like the Triple Crown races and, and you know sometimes yeah. the Florida yeah. Derby be on Wide World of Sports or the the Travers or, or you know races like that. But I go now, not only do we get races, you can you can see races from every track. You can see races from overseas. You can watch workouts. I mean, it's yeah. just uh, yeah. the amount of information now we have is is kind of a, yeah. a, a, a an overload sometimes. You know, too much, yeah. but. Uh, yeah, but you know it's uh, it's it's. I really, I'm I'm so happy that uh, that you could find time to to give us uh, some of your time today, and um, 
uh, I appreciate uh, your your your, uh, your input, and uh, I sure would love to have you back on. Oh, I'd love to do it. This is like a trip down memory lane. It's fun to do. Great. It's been nice talking to you. Listen, uh, drive safely, and uh, how how long are you going to be down uh, down this this part of the time? I stayed I stay down all through the winter. Uh, Todd, we we usually wrap it up around the beginning of June, first week of June or so. All right. Well, I'll I'll I'll, I'll make sure I stop over and, and see you guys over at Palm Beach Downs and. Uh, yeah, do that. Yeah, but I appreciate it. I do appreciate it, and uh, I know you know. I always get a lot of people sending me questions to ask guests afterwards. Um, yeah, well, let's do it. I'm, and, I'm, I'm and, uh, not going to do it anytime you want to do it. I, I certainly, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get get uh, get a lot. So, Bob, thank you. Appreciate it. All and uh, drive safely. All right. Thank All right. you. Bye bye. That was. Bob Duncan, everyone, uh, long, long time starter, and I don't mean to make him feel old or anything, but uh, but he essentially has been on the gate since I saw horse racing, and uh, I was lucky enough to to have him help me with with some horses, um, and he's done a great job and kind of uh, kind of changed um, you know changed the way that uh, that starting gates. Um, the the gate crews that the, how they handle horses and I think a measure of someone's um, where they stand professionally is that uh, other people copy them and a lot of Bob's techniques weren't exactly embraced in the beginning because people are traditional and uh, horse racing especially and um, a lot of what he's uh, kind of pioneered ha- has been adopted by a lot of uh, gate crews and and uh i mean this is a different era this different society we have and uh you know beating horses into the gate is is just not going to um it's just not going to work like it used to work and segueing into someone who gets into horses minds and takes a a, a different view of the horse and, and uh tries to to come up with uh, the the horse's view of uh we have with us uh, carrie thomas from tht bloodstock uh carrie has been working diligently trying to get his annual report out with his partner pete Danka uh, on the kentucky derby and he, he he goes through all the uh all the horses that are in there and uh he took a few minutes out of his busy schedule to join us carrie how are you Hey Chuck, I'm doing all right, buddy. Yeah, it's it's been pretty crazy. We're uh, we're still in the trenches trying to get everything done, and we got uh, another another horse to do yet before we can wrap it up. Well, they keep coming up with these horses out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, Pete, Pete and I have been putting in. I mean, basically, we're looking at almost 18-hour days here the last few days trying to get everything done, and then of course you have the last, you know, the added horses. So yeah, we're we're but we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, explain to everybody um, briefly what you're doing uh, when you're analyzing uh, the the horses that are in the Derby. What what uh, how, your take? Um, what 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 are you uh, trying to accomplish? You know, the, the, the number one thing we're trying to accomplish, and what we're doing with, with our work here is <clears throat> we're evaluating the the operating system. Uh, of the machine, you know, the horse psychology, how, how is the horse handling stress 
how how efficient is the sensory system? Their influence on other horses? Are they being affected by the environment? You know, everything in the psychology, really, everything that embraces the psychological part of the athlete. Because you know, you have you have a lot of physical talent out there, but you know, physical talent and, and mental ability are two different things. And if you don't have optimal athletic ability from a psychological standpoint, then you're just left with whatever talent that you have, and you're not going to really be able to optimize that. So, you know, this is our 10th year doing the Kentucky Derby profiles of all the horses. Uh, and if anyone wants to check out the previous years, they're on our website, thdbloodstock.com, and big race analysis section. You can get an idea. Or you can see all the past ones there. <clears throat> and it's, it's, it's a really fascinating study because, we're studying the, the tendencies in motion, uh, what we call the, it's the patterns of motion report, and, and everything that makes up who the horse is. We know what the horses are, but we're identifying the, the unique character traits that make them who they are. So, obviously, you've heard the news about our collector. Oh, yeah, I know. Not, not being, uh, you know, having a, a relatively minor injury. It's just the timing sucks. It, it just is... Uh, it's it's you know I feel I feel terrible for those guys I really do I, I know I know I for mean sure. it's like the culmination sure. of your, of your your professional career and then to have that happen and uh, yeah you know yeah. thank you God know, it's not like a, a major injury where the horse has to be retired or he's going to be a compromise I mean he'll heal and be be fine and you know next week he'll probably gallop great and he'll probably right. want to right. you know cute himself yeah but, uh, yeah you know and. and but it's one of those things where, regardless of the sport and, and the circumstances, you know, that you, you put the horse first and, and the horse's well-being first, and and that's that's something that you always, you know, you you appreciate when people uh, do that uh, for, for the horses because we, we don't always know from the from the abstract view of what's going on behind the scenes, and you know, we don't know the horses intimately uh, more often than not. So, um, hey, he'll 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 go on to fight another day. We we had. We had collected, you know, spent several, a, a million hours studying all his races and, and uh, breaking down the film. And we, we break down the film basically and, and go almost frame by frame on, on every race and, and look at, you know, how a horse is doing every part of the race. Because the race breaks apart into several pieces from a mental standpoint. You, know, you, have, you have what's going on before, you have what's happening in the gate. Yeah, uh, then you have when they go from zero to sixty, you know, from from that stop to to start, and how how is their, you know, how is their sensory system interpreting the environment, and how is that affecting their motion? So you know, you have to break everything down in the, into the various compartments and then reassemble it to get the picture of the horse. So we had all that done for him, but we hadn't written the report yet. So we we have all the notes. Right. Well, yeah, yeah, you, you're saving a little bit of time now that you don't have to do it, but. Uh... What do you? Let me ask you this question. This year, being the oddball year that it is, we're we're going to have a derby that we generally have 150, 160 thousand people screaming all over the place, noise, uh, all, all kinds of uh, uh, you know positive, negative the, the, stimulus. Yeah, I yeah, mean, the, the, the what is this gen. year's like? How how do you interpret this year's um, fact that there's not going to be literally anyone there well you know and actually i I, so every year i write an introduction to the derby report and i talk about uh various various topics of course this year being our decade year i I do some reflection back and 
and all that. And we're introducing a brand new rating scale this year that we've been working on for quite some time that I'm, we're super excited about where we're combining the, the herd dynamic, you know, the, the physical and, and the mental force together and coming up with uh, a rating scale, the herd dynamic power ranking scale. <clears throat> so we're really excited about that. But, you know, and one of the factors, of course, for when, you're, when we're doing this for a particular race, it's not enough just to look at the individual horse, but you really have to look at the atmosphere and the environment and how, how a horse is equipped to handle that. You know, for the Derby, we always factor in the, 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 the scene. I mean, basically, the atmosphere, the scene, the people, the human element, all that energy. Um, and and it, it certainly is a, a something to be considered, and it's, a, it's an important factor. And I talk about this in the introduction to the report this year. Uh, I touch upon the fact that one of the things that's different is the, the lack of, of the, the human element. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, a, a lot of horses are very codependent in their herd nature. So they have parts of the psyche that, I mean, they're herd animals, and they have a, a dependency slash codependency nature to them. Um, the bulk of horses have that going on, and it doesn't, it can affect or not affect their athletic output, uh, depending on the, on the degree and where it's at in their psyche. But some horses can actually hide, you know, use the din, the chaos of the scene to kind of, if they're not as strong, not as strong as herd dynamic as, as psychologically as the horse, you know, next to me, I can use the, the din of, of the environment to kind of hide and, and to kind of take me away, take me out of the focus. <clears throat> so on one regard, you'll, you'll have it, horses that would be affected by it are going to get a little bit of a break, but horses that would be able to use that as camouflage against the, you know, higher herd dynamic horses in their sphere, uh, they're not going to have that. They're going to be more exposed. So it, it's a kind of a double-edged sword, and I'm interested to see, <clears throat> you know, how this pans out in, in the bigger picture, because I know I've written extensively about this part of the of the herd dynamic and, and the, the codependency part of the of their psyche. So it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out for, for the horses. And we've had incorporated that in, but it certainly is. It, it has a lot to do with it. It really, it really does. The whole environment of, of the Derby. I mean, I mean, this year you got you know people say to me coming into the Derby, oh, you guys have more races to evaluate. You know, you should do. You get more information. Well, that's true. That that is very true. But you know, at the same time, and Chuck, you know this better than anyone, as from training all those years and <clears throat> and your experiences, you know there is something for to be said for attrition. So you have where you have more horses, or I'm sorry, more races under your belt for, for most cases. <clears throat> you also have that the additional wear and tear possibility as well, mental fatigue, physical fatigue uh, that they have to consider. So. We're looking at it from a different a different way. You know, the the, the sh- late spring three year old is a lot different beast than the than the late summer early fall three year old in, in different ways. Some horses have gotten stronger. Some horses may be showing a little bit of signs of that they have perhaps peaked a little bit ago, and maybe you're not at that at that stage yet. I mean, there's a bunch of different things to, to factor in. Sure. No, absolutely, and that's you know we're also dealing with a, a September. A September Derby, which right, uh, yeah, I mean horses certainly three year olds are, are, are uh, a lot of them are, are a lot more physically mature at this yeah. point. And I thought it was interesting looking at the PPs that there's still a lot of the contenders that are very lightly raced. And I, I uh, I'm not asking you to divulge any secrets, but when I, I watched 
honor AP's uh, race in California, and he seemed very green to me still. He seemed like a horse that was unsure of of uh, exactly what, what he was doing out there. And uh, and then we look, he's had five starts, but it's over a year period, and, and it's been yeah. interrupted quite a bit. And, and I just wonder sometimes that... Um, you know, I, I know modern trends uh, uh, in, uh, are to not race the horses as much as as they um, as they did in the past, but um, um, I don't really know where I'm going with this, other than to just say that the I, I didn't think it was a coincidence that the two horses that had had the best records coming into this that had the, that had uh, pretty much accomplished the most were the horses that. That had more starts under their belt, and mm-hmm. I think that sometimes <laughs> that um, experience, like like I, well, I, it, you know, what I learned from you was that a lot of times um, a horse is going to like something or not going to like something based upon their personality, based upon how you know w- w- the, the way they think about things, and we could do it a million times. It, it's like if you work a horse on the grass. 50 times but they don't like the grass it's probably not going to help you know and I, exactly exactly and i exactly. think sometimes Here's that the thing i always not not to interrupt you but i no. wanted to point out because you, you make a you make a good reference here because you know something else that we look at all the time and especially when we're looking to handicap the field of, of horses like this is i'm trying to always identify and track uh growth pattern markers you know every every individual no matter what we are who we are basically has a different psychological growth pattern. They, they, they grow in the, at different rates. Some, some mature faster than others in different areas. Um, and, and every horse psychology has this little idiosyncrasies that some horses <clears throat> learn over time, you know, one experience at a time. Some take it all in at once. Some are, some are so high-functioning that they just absorb everything just so naturally it looks like they're not even learning anything. Um, and, and it does have... It does have a big having more races actually gives you time to. I mean, to me, I always look at two different things with, with trainers. You you're trained the physical horse, but you coach the mental horse. And there's a lot lot of training going on, but sometimes there's not. I don't. I feel sometimes there's not always enough coaching going on. And when you have someone who's very adept at doing both, and you give that person more time in which to do it, you don't have to. It doesn't have to be so condensed. So you can actually take your time and and maybe put together a curriculum for your horse that will benefit them in the long run, and and it's not so so condensed. And it's it's a really important thing um, tracking the, the growth patterns and the tendencies, and especially the tendencies under competitive stress. I mean, it's just I mean, some horses can look like beasts. I, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to how quote unquote confident a look a horse looks on the workout. That that's fine. You know, it, it is what it is. You know, you'd rather have a confident horse than not. But, but that means little to me by comparison of, of how how they handle herd stress in motion against their peers. Um, you know, it, it's a whole different ball game when you're in combat. <clears throat> so we don't look for. I, I don't watch, you know, over and over workouts for 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 mental clues. Um, there, there's some information to be gleaned, but really. We do all this work uh, on profiling the, the races that we have access to, uh, video work. So, you know, and watching for those growth patterns because you really can't, you really can't 
um, accurately, I don't think, accurately ascertain the psychological makeup of an individual horse if you're looking at the horse simply as an individual because they're herd animals. So you have to take that individual and put that individual in situational chaos in circumstances where they have to be able to read the intention of other horses. They have to be able to uh, interpret multiple stimulus happening at one time from, from the jockey to the, to the track to the weather to the horses around them to whatever the case may be. <clears throat> and, you know, it, it's a big difference between horses moving through space and, and horses um, moving in space. You know, moving in space is just kind of like, hey, I'm here, we're working out, we're doing our thing. You know, what are you guys up to? And moving through spaces, they get the heck out of my way. I'm coming through. Right. <clears throat> you know, and, and there's, there's, there's a difference there. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. And uh, uh, are you guys uh, going to do some work at the yearling sales coming up? Uh, yeah, we're, we're hoping so. We're hoping so. You know, we're going to, um, obviously, we're a full-service bloodstock company, so we're hoping that this fall, um, sees us at the sales. Everything's everything's always fluid and, and in motion, you know, with everything that's going on. But um, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, we we certainly have every uh, you know every every hope that we'll be we'll be in action for sure. Well, that's yeah. We good. were we uh, were supposed to be <laughs> overseas for for some work uh, this past summer, but of course, you know, yeah. <clears throat> as as things turned out, we uh, I I stayed here in my little house in Cochranville, Pennsylvania. You know, so here I am. No, well, that's the, <laughs> I mean, you know, nobody could have saw this coming, I don't think. And, uh, no, no, exactly. I, I, would, exactly. I, would I just, just got to roll, uh, I, just, I just roll with the punches, I just go with the flow. I, I, that's all we can do, but I, I certainly would vouch for your guys' abilities um, to pick out good horses. You have a really good record with not uh, a huge number of horses, I mean, if you yeah, if I mean, you're buying two hundred horses a year, you're, you're gonna you're gonna buy a couple steak horses just by throwing well, darts at the thing. But exactly, I know exactly. you guys' you record is good. <laughs> One of the things I've always been proud of, and you know from from working with us, <clears throat> is I'm really most proud of the part that we that we play because you know I'm not one that says yes a lot to to a horse. You know I I I'm not in the I'm not in the numbers game. I'm not looking to buy 50 horses and, and try to get lucky. I, I want to find the right fit for the right program. And, and a lot of times that means going to a sale and saying, your horse is not here for the, for the price you're willing to pay in, in your budget. and Or the horse is not here at all. Um, let's, let's, let's pick up the, the pack and, and go to the next one because, you know, it's, it's not fair. The way I look at it is it's not fair to put <clears throat> the wrong – horse into the wrong situation i mean if you don't have you know if you don't have a horse as a prospect that cannot handle the emotional and psychological demands of becoming a professional athlete um then you don't need to invest your money in that horse because it's not it's not fair to the horse to be pushed into something that they're mentally not able and not capable of really fulfilling or getting to a certain point and um, just kind of hitting a plateau, <clears throat> um, you know, I'd rather, to me, potential is, is found, potential and value are found between the years. Um, and then, and then you consider everything else. I mean, we, obviously we consider everything, um, the physical horse, the pedigree, 
but the primary focus is, well, let's, let's find out first if this horse even has the, the herd dynamic makeup and the sensory efficiency and the stress management ability that they can even do all these things uh, that we're projecting them for. But just because you're bred for it doesn't mean you're going to do it. I mean, you know, my brother, I had a brother that played professional baseball with the Atlanta Braves, and uh, I didn't. You know, we had the same parents. We have the same parents, but uh, he was a pro athlete, and I was a bat boy. So what does that tell you? <laughs> That's true, but he'd probably never wandered around Wyoming looking at horses in the middle. No, no, I, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I've taken a, a whole different a whole different route. We all um, have our, our strengths and... and, and uh, yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> and negatives, exactly. but... Uh, yeah, I think you're right, and I'll be honest, I would vouch for you guys 100% wholeheartedly, and I think that what you do is you, you take an approach um, that virtually no one else does, and to me, there's lots of guys out there that can go and pick horses out on their looks, on the way they walk, their physical attributes. There's lots of people that are really good. There's actually a lot of people that aren't any good, but they talk really well, and they get clients, and... Right, you know, but um, but you guys take a different, a, a completely different angle, and, and you know, you you've learned the physical uh, as well, and uh, I, I know Pete has because I've seen it with my own two eyes, and there's not a whole lot of people in the thoroughbred racehorse business or the sales business that that I would wholeheartedly uh, endorse, but you guys are, are one of uh, of you, you you know, you guys certainly would be that. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. that, you know, and we do. You know, even though being on site is, uh, of course, the best case scenario at a, at a sale, but uh, just to give an example of a horse that went on to do pretty well overseas, we did some video analysis uh, as a yearling for a horse that turned out to become uh, Beauty Generation and uh, ended up being a pretty darn good horse uh, out of New Zealand in, in Hong Kong. So, you know, we can <clears throat> we can do a lot through video and, and and analysis as well but nothing beats being there but there are many many options because of the way we look at horses that's true and and I don't know if people realize that not only uh, are you uh, excellent at analyzing horses but you're one of the world's foremost uh, experts on the Swiss mushroom cheeseburgers yes i i am M- mushroom and swiss exactly have you had you, one, you, have you had one a good one lately? Well, I haven't had one. You know, I had to. Ma- I made my own uh, recently because I, I just I just had a hankering for a really good mushroom and Swiss. But uh, you know, I, I actually don't eat bread anymore. At least not uh, unless, it's, unless it's whole wheat or, or grain. So um, I, I make it, and if, I, if I'm out someplace, I get the <laughs> I get all the stuff with the burger and just just hold the bread. So. I'm telling you, you should make a coffee table book on on the Swiss mushroom cheeseburgers that, that you've eaten. I, I have the tried various uh, <laughs> ways of doing it, and and the key to the key to my heart is I have two keys to my heart: it's mushroom and Swiss burgers and, and horses. So it's pretty simple. Gary, uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. And what, what's uh, tell people again where they can access your report when you guys finally do get it done. So we're we're going to be have it uh, distributed through Brisnet this year again. We've been with them for several years. Um, so Brisnet.com, the THT Bloodstocks, 
Kentucky Derby herd dynamics analysis. And like I said, if you're if anyone's interested to see what that looks like, uh, the big race analysis section of our website, thdbloodstock.com, you can check out the archives there. Uh, like I said, though, Chuck, I'm really excited this year. <clears throat> Pete and I have worked for years to identify really key key markers uh, and behavioral traits and tendencies to uh, to be able to track to get ourselves to, to this point where we're having uh, a rating system. Um, so I, I'm really pumped about that. So this year we're introducing it for the first time uh, in the Derby Report. So we're breaking new ground, and it has it – like Pete and I were just going over things. It's like, man, this having this – having worked this out after all these years of, of hard work <clears throat> has basically revolutionized the way we're <clears> – <throat> excuse me, the way we're, we're rating and looking at and understanding horses. And it's just uh, – I'm, I'm really excited with, with what's in front of us. Excellent. Thank you, Carrie. Appreciate it. Tell Pete what's up. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing your report when, it, when when you're done. All right, buddy. Yeah, i got to get right back into it. No, no rest for the weary. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, Chuck. All right. That was Carrie Thomas from THT Bloodstock, who does a, a yearly, or I should say an annual, um, breakdown of the derby horses from a... Uh, from a, a mental standpoint, and, and this is the one race of the year where that matters probably as much as any other race in that these horses are being asked to do something that they'll never be asked to do again, and that, that's compete in an 18-horse race. And, um, you know, I know a lot of years it's 20, but it, it's still, I think the average field size is somewhere around seven, seven and a half, and maybe a little bit bigger on the turf, maybe a little less on the dirt, especially these two turn races. But uh, being able to handle um, being in among horses, being uh, sitting and waiting while 18 horses load in the gate um, and being able to maybe be one of the first ones loaded or one of the last ones loaded, and this year, obviously, no crowd, which is a you know take takes away a, a huge factor that um, you know a huge factor that, that a horse has got to overcome to win the Kentucky Derby. And that outside of of Keeneland, outside of Saratoga, um, maybe Delmar to a little bit lesser extent, for the most part. Uh, we don't have big crowds, and horses don't have to deal with it. And certainly, the Derby is different than than those. The Preakness is is, is probably cl- uh, close because of the amount of people in the infield, and and um, it, it's a it, it's a big crowd. It's a festival like experience. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of uh, ambient noise. There's concerts in the infield. There's helicopters. That. That was always the one thing that struck me whenever you went to a, a big sporting event. I remember the first time my brother and I went to the Super Bowl. Um, it was that it was in Miami. It was the year that the 49ers beat um, the Chargers, and we got there, of course, you know, really early. And it was amazing how many um, helicopters and, and planes and stuff were buzzing overhead. And, and, and the Derby is is very similar in that there's a lot of um, a lot of noise, uh, and of course, this year would have been different, regardless with the backside. But Churchill has always been um, 
pretty flexible about what goes on on the backside during Oaks and Derby Day. And a lot of people have parties at the barn. They have picnics. There, there's a lot of people on the backside those days. And, uh, again, uh, you know, whenever there's people around, whenever there's drinking, <laughs> um, Today we uh, we're going to pull up at four thirty, and um, I, I did appreciate that uh, Bob Bob Duncan was able to join us from uh, somewhere in Virginia. He uh, he actually is is heading down to uh, to Florida from from New York, and uh, he's literally on his way. But uh, and Carrie, who's who I know, Carrie and Pete uh, were both supposed to be on, but uh, they're just feverishly trying to get uh, to get done and, and they have these these um these late entry horses that weren't even considered for the derby at least publicly just kind of uh, popping up here at the last minute uh, today of uh, a horse named south bend who bill mott trains um who's i, I know he's run he's had some you know, mid-pack finishes in some of these i think he ran into maybe in the belmont um, and Mr. Big News, who honestly is not much big news at all. It's funny that when you look at the Derby, um, you, you look at the overnight for the Derby and you see the names uh, as jockeys. This is going to be, uh, someone should do a mental evaluation of, of the jockeys going into this race because there's a lot of guys that this is completely foreign to, that they don't ride the derby regularly. And and yes, they might ride a Churchill, but you're not riding a Churchill in an 18-horse race that starts at the top of the stretch and goes around twice. And, you know, you're, you're, you're there's lots of races in this country run with a shoot, sort of uh, a long run to the turn. But this is the only one where there's that long run to the turn, and then there's another turn. And it's going to be interesting to see some of these guys who are first-timers uh, or, or guys who have not ridden in the race much at all. I mean, you have uh, – I don't have the numbers right here in front of me for the jockeys, but um, uh, the rider of Enforceable, Adam Bachiza. um Jimmy Graham, I think, has ridden the Derby before, but he's not a big. He's not. He's not riding every year in, in the Derby. Um, 
Martin Garcia got the rail on on uh, Finicky the Fierce. Um, Sammy Camacho is a first timer. Gabriel Saez. Uh, Miguel Mena is is a veteran rider, but he he's not uh, that experienced in these kind of situations. Luca Panici, um, you know Joe Rocco, uh, even Manny Franco is not. Uh, he's never been in the situation he's in here where he's riding the favorite, and, and of course there's always a little bit more pressure when you're on the favorite because number one, all eyes are on you, and number two, people expect you to win. So you know if the horse loses, the first place they're going to point that finger is you. So it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a good race. I, I really uh, can't tell you how disappointed I am that our collector's not going to be in this race. It really kind of uh, it really kind of takes away from the luster. It just was that that matchup of those two horses that had just been. So so much head and shoulders above their competition from different parts of the country and and kind of uh you know not uh, not coming from super trainer stables and uh it, it just was uh you know it sucks i don't know how i will say it but i think that the draw has 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 been brings up some interesting angles here with authentic drawing the far outside with tis the law drawing 17 with honor ap and, and 16 um, and even New York traffic who, who who's in post 15, uh, there, there's those sources are, are um, are going to be among the first four or five favorites. And I think max players, uh, was, was hurt a little bit by the, by the, um, by the draw drawn post two in that he has got to be, uh, Santana has got to be very cognizant of the fact that he does not want everyone to come over on him and wind up 15th down the backside because I don't think he's got enough kick to, to pass them all. Enforceable, he draws post three. Um, I know someone who likes his feet. He is just a, a dead one-run closer, so it, it probably he was going to be towards the back anyways. Saving ground probably doesn't hurt him a whole lot. Uh, Storm the court. I, I just don't see this horse. Major Fed is another horse that's just probably going to be out the back and and uh, probably try to save as much ground as he can in the first turn and see what happens. King Guillermo draws inside most of the other um, horses who want to lay up close and, and be or be on the lead. So I, I think Sammy Camacho is going to probably send out of there uh, and try to get some sort of forward position from post six um it's it's tough to um it, it's tough for a horse like him to to get buried on, uh, inside and he's been training very very sharp and he hasn't run in a while so i expect him to be real fresh in this race and uh, uh i i know that um i, I know that uh that he's trained great but i i just have a hard time um, off of the layoff, which I, I really haven't heard a, a great explanation of why it was done. Um, he's he's next to Money Moves, who's a very lightly raced horse, who's really up against it here. Uh, South Bend is just kind of a another horse that, that I think is a little bit up against it. Mister Big News, I, I 
don't understand why he's in the race. Thousand Words is really not a speed horse. He went to the lead his last race, but you got to remember it was a four horse field, and the three and the four on our AP and um, the horse I think uh, Flavian Pratt was riding in that that race um, at Los Alamitos. They broke. They kind of broke. Uh, well, I mean, Honor EP kind of got bumped pretty hard coming out of there, and Thousand Words kind of inherited the lead. And uh, he, he was able to set a, a really soft first quarter. The half wasn't that wasn't that pressing, and, and he did run well. And he had really tailed off. And here's a horse that, if the Derby was held in May, would have not been in it. And uh, coming off his his race in Arkansas, where he just was was dismal. He he didn't run at all. Um, and I think he's a quality horse. I mean, he was a million dollar yearling, but. Uh, I just uh, I look at some of his other races and I just don't know what to expect from him. Necker Island, I just uh, I know he's a he's a nice story. He was claimed and um, you know, Will Harbutt uh, is a relative of the the man that rubbed Man of War. So certainly there's uh, some history there, but I, I think he's in way way over his head. Uh, I said on the podcast last night if Sol Volante was. Uh, if, if this was the Kentucky Derby turf, I, I would probably like Sol Volante to win the race, but it's not, and he's got a lot to overcome. Um, he's got a jockey that, that's not used to riding in these type of races, uh, and I guess maybe it's a little bit easier when you're riding a horse that doesn't have a lot of early speed and you're, you're just trying to settle and make that run and, and that you don't have as many choices as a, as a rider who's um, going to have to make some decisions like um, Paco Lopez. Where does, what, what does he do? Uh, we're assuming that authentic from post 18 with John uh, Velasquez is going to send that he's not going to just hang out there wide that, uh, He's going to try to make the lead from from out there, and 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 it's crazy to think, but post eighteen isn't as big of a deal in the Kentucky Derby because you have such a long run to the to the turn that um, if he horse breaks alertly and gets his feet under him and is there, there's not a whole lot of early speed in the Derby, so. I mean, you got to assume that Authentic is going to try to cross over, and you got to assume that Tis the Law is going to try to follow him and take a position outside of Authentic, kind of lapped on. Uh, what is Mike Smith going to do from 16 with Tis the Law outside of him? Is he going to try to keep Tis the Law outside of him going into that first turn? Is he going to use his horse a little earlier um, than he would maybe like, especially after that? kind of didn't work out so great. And I understand he 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 kind of got um, bumped pretty hard at the start last race, but it was a four-horse race, and he just doesn't look like a horse that's got that quick turn of foot, and, and I'm not really sure... Um, I'm not really sure what he's going to do with him. And, you know, New York traffic is another one. He's not quite as fast as authentic, um, but... You know, Paco is definitely not going to want to be uh, 17 wide, and he's also not going to want to be uh, getting away slow. So, 
I'm sure he'll be forwardly placed. And it really makes, um, you know, with, with all those horses with similar styles, all kind of drawing way outside, the, the danger exists in those horses uh, trying to jockey for position, um, wind up coming over on some of the other horses, uh, King Guillermo especially, who, who's just going to try to get out of there. He's not going to want to be buried, and he's going to be sending at her pretty, pretty hard. So um, it makes a, it, it's going to be a, a, a jockey's race for sure. Uh, of course, it, it's, it, it generally is, um, and it's going to take a lot of luck. I mean, you, you have to be, you have to be lucky to win the Kentucky Derby. Uh, you think of so many horses who, who are fortunate that they got through a hole, or that they didn't get bumped, they didn't get wiped out. They, they, they found themselves. Uh, I mean, going back to Spendabuck, right? I mean, how does that race look if Eternal Prince breaks sharp and they duel? And I know Spendabuck went real fast early and set real fast fractions, but he set them with a four or five length lead. How, if you know when a horse gets loose a lot of times, especially a horse of quality, when they're allowed to relax uh, on the lead, even if they're going uh, at a decent clip, they're still uh, at an advantage as to when a horse is is right uh, on top of them. Um, it's uh, it's, it's going to be a, a, fascinating, a fascinating race, even without... Uh, even without our collector in there, and, and uh, certainly the um, the Oaks is uh, is really um, a fascinating race as well. Uh, the The undercards are, are, are good; they're strong undercards. The races um, are competitive; they're big fields. Kentucky gets the guys, the the horsemen in Kentucky. They they run; uh, those guys show up. Uh, they show up to run and. Uh, it's uh it should be an excellent um two days of racing uh i know there's a lot of issues in that in the town and i'm just hoping that um the people make their statements get heard uh and that there's no no secondary violence or no no issues because uh that just doesn't really benefit anyone but uh Anyways, again, I want to thank Bob Duncan and Carrie Thomas for um, for coming on today, and uh, I hope everybody has a great weekend. See you later. This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. 